Welcome to Father Samuel's Pod. Um, just wanted to give you a little bit of introduction before I launch you into the Teaching Mass Liturgy of the Word podcast recording. The Teaching Mass was done with my phone in my pocket, which caused quite a bit of kind of background scratchiness, so you'll notice that during it. The audio, for the most part, can be heard very well, but the readings weren't heard well, and so I cut the reading and the psalm out of the actual audio, and so if you'd like to see that, you can click on the link in the description of the podcast. Um, I also included there a few other resources and other things that I referenced. I referenced Wikipedia, um, not explicitly, but through my research, and I find that Wikipedia does a very good job of finding the different information if you're able to kind of uh, discern and kind of uh, scratch the surface. It's kind of a great holistic site to be able to see a lot of background, and so I reference that in the podcast descriptions as well. The podcast audio cuts off after the general intercessions um, that will um, end with that. And then I included my announcement about the teaching mass on the liturgy of the Eucharist will be be in a few weeks and then a final blessing. But hope that uh, you can take all of my mistakes and words. I can assure you that it's better in person than listening to it on audio. But if audio is all that you have, I guess you'll uh, work with it. Um, Hope it is fruitful and helpful for you. And God bless. Bye. Good afternoon and welcome tonight. I'd like to do some introductory remarks. First of all, this is the normal 5.30 p.m. Mass. If you're only expecting a half an hour Mass... Uh, it'll be a little bit longer tonight, so just, just to set your expectations correctly. Hoping uh, it'll be about an hour, hour and 15 minutes, and then we'll be able to head downstairs for some refreshments as well. But we'd like to start, before we even start kind of the teaching Mass, of course Mass begins even before the start of Mass. Uh, the priest has to be prepared in different ways, you know, of course the church gets ready, we ourselves get ready. As you all came in here today, you, you made the sign of the cross, uh, or, you know, most of us, unless you came in other exits or tried to avoid me or something else, you know, uh, put your hand in the holy water and made, made the sign of the cross and remembered your baptism in that. And then you came down and most likely knelt down and said some prayers. Well, a priest similarly prepares himself in different ways. A priest put on an alb underneath, which is a white cloth. Uh, which remembers our baptismal um, identity, right? That we put on this and I actually cover up kind of my clerical collar and other, other things. I intentionally do that uh, because I'm, I'm not acting as Father Samuel. I'm actually standing in the person of Christ at the start of Mass. And so I cover that up with my baptism. Then I put on a stole, which is basically a, a long uh, cloth. Um, and that's really where the authority comes as a priest of the stole. And so in confession, I just wear a stole. In other sacraments, I might just wear a stole. Um, although it's not absolutely necessary, it is, again, kind of one of the parts. And kind of if I only had one liturgical cloth to wear, I would wear the stole for a Mass. Then on top of the stole, I put on the chasuble which is, kind of means little house. And it kind of comes, kind of, again, from the Roman time. And it is supposed to specifically kind of be this little house of charity, of love. So what I love about it in some symbolism, for a little bit, there was kind of a, a time where the stole, and you sometimes see it on occasion, still go over the chasuble, and they're kind of decorated in different ways, and it's kind of one way to kind of spice things up. Uh, but I like putting the stole, the symbolism of putting the stole, the power, the authority of the priest, underneath the chasuble, which puts love over the authority and over the power of the priest. And so... Uh, you know, that's kind of the chasuble uh, that you see. And these are chasubles that I've had made and it's kind of more of a traditional uh, way of looking. Specifically, you kind of have the three, the trinity, uh, but also the unity in one. And so you kind of have that symbolism in it as well. When I get ready, I try to, before every single Mass, take some time to offer some prayers. And specifically, I've got to check 
who the mass is for. So every mass has an intentional intention, and I often announce that at the beginning of mass. This mass, very gratefully, is for the repose of the soul of Father Vitruba, uh, Father George Vitruba, and so grateful to be able to talk more about the mass and to be able to offer mass for the repose of his soul. Um, but also want to offer at times Thanksgiving before Mass, right? Bring our attention, you know, unite our minds. And so I'd like to, as we prepare, uh, pray the Thanksgiving that I often pray before Mass. I won't say I always pray because sometimes, you know, things get busy or whatever else before Mass, and so I'm not able to. But certainly the intention is to be able to do this. And this is a Thanksgiving before Mass written by St. Thomas Aquinas. Almighty and everlasting God, Behold, I come to the sacrament of thine only begotten Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. I come as one infirm to the physician of life, as one unclean to the fountain of mercy, as one blind to the light of everlasting brightness, as one poor and needy to the Lord of heaven and earth. Therefore, I implore the abundance of thy measureless bounty, that thou would vouchsafe to heal my infirmity, wash my uncleanliness, enlighten my blindness, enrich my poverty, and clothe my nakedness that I may receive the bread of angels, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, with such reverence and humility, with such sorrow and devotion, with such purity and faith, with such purpose and intention as may be profitable to my soul's salvation. Grant unto me, I pray, the grace of receiving not only the sacrament of our Lord's body and blood, but also the grace and power of the sacrament. O most gracious God, grant me so to receive the body of thine only begotten Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, which he took from the Virgin Mary as to merit to be incorporated into his mystical body and to be numbered amongst his members. O most loving Father, give me grace to behold forever thy beloved Son with his face at last unveiled, whom I now propose to receive under the sacramental veil here below. And actually, that preparation, which I forgot to mention before, is actually on the back inside cover of Missal, the preparation for Mass and the Thanksgiving after Mass. Slightly different translation, but you can actually find that there before and after Mass. I should have had you follow along, but I've got a different translation, so you couldn't have followed along anyways. Um, we'd like to start now with the hymn, and, and the uh, Mass always starts with a hymn or some sort of unifying uh, aspect. The hymn is supposed to help gather us together so that we sing with one voice. Sometimes there might be different ways of doing that. I know I often don't sing at a daily Mass, so sometimes we just pray a Hail Mary, but we're praying that together. We're unifying in prayer. Um, also, sometimes a chant or an antiphon is said that the Church gives us for a specific Mass, and that's sometimes used as well. For today, I'd like to sing Faith of Our Fathers, which is 487. 487. And uh, I particularly like this hymn, um, in many ways, one of the reason, ways is that we realize our faith doesn't come from ourselves, but it comes from our parents. This hymn um, was specifically written during the time in, uh, was written in England. And England specifically experienced, they were Catholic, they became Anglican, and then there was a huge amount of persecution for Catholics. And so kind of those Catholics who did endure in England, you know, are able to speak about living still in spite of dungeon, fire, and sword, how many martyrs there were of the faith of our fathers. And so, and we ourselves celebrate the Mass, thankfully, and uh, not having to worry about dungeon or fire, uh, but we are very grateful for our ancestors and those who went before us who certainly did endure difficulty to live out their faith. And so let us stand. And Renee, would you lead us off? Far fathers living still in spite And now at this point, 
Mass has still not begun. Mass begins with the sign of the cross. That's, again, all kind of preparatory things, but I'd like to give a few other kind of words of note of kind of preparation, uh, what you kind of notice. So when I entered in, there's often an entrance procession, and that's for a few different, few different reasons, but one of the reasons that I kind of like the symbolism of it is that there's a journey of faith that goes along with it. And that as the priest walks in, we also are walking on our path as well. Hopefully we're walking towards the cross, walking towards Jesus Christ. And so again, that kind of preparation, that journey that is symbolized by the priest coming in. It's often headed by a cross, right? That we proclaim the cross of Christ with our life. But also, if I had more servers, I would have these two candles as well in procession. That the candles, of course, are the light of Christ that we shine. But also, one of the other things that I love about candles is that there's a sacrifice aspect to candles as well. That something is given up by the light that is burned by them. These are just oil candles, but they certainly still take up oil in order to, uh, to burn. And wax candles even kind of lose their stature as they burn the light of Christ. That we realize that we give of ourselves even as the light of Christ shines. In a Sunday Mass, we'd also have the book of the Gospels that would process forward. That is again kind of high, holding high the Word of God. And we'll talk more about the book of the Gospels uh, later on as well during that time. You might have also noticed that a priest, when he comes around to the altar, we always kiss the altar. Often you're sometimes too, you know, thankfully, you're, you're, you know, you're reading the hymn and whatever else and, and singing, and you might not notice that. But a priest comes up and he kisses the altar, and we, of course, kiss things out of, out of reverence. And so there's a few things that a priest kisses throughout Mass, uh, a few other reasons why we might do that. And so just to reverence, that we also give reverence to the altar throughout Mass. The tabernacle is there and is the presence of Jesus, Jesus Christ, and we genuflect to the tabernacle outside of Mass. But within Mass, we actually kind of, not that we ignore the tabernacle, but all of our focus is on the altar. Because the altar is where the sacrifice happens, which leads us to the tabernacle, to lead us to the Eucharist. And so the priest acknowledges that as he kisses the altar on his way in. The Mass actually begins, so even if you come in during the hymn, you're still not really late yet, okay? The, the beginning of Mass and the start begins with the sign of the cross. And so why don't we begin in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Of course, we as Catholics know the sign of the cross so great, and we, we just assume it's always been there, right? Um, but actually, it hasn't always been in the form that we know today. And it hasn't always been a part of the liturgy either. But we, the modern form that we get of the sign of the cross in the early church, it might have just been a cross on the forehead, just a small cross, a small sign, or a small cross on their heart. But in the 11th century, Mark, monks started to practice a little bit larger sign of the cross, tracing the cross of Christ onto their body. And of course, also remembering the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so, as Catholics, as Roman Catholics, as Latin Catholics, we do that specifically with our right hand. We make the sign of the cross. If you ever see somebody making it with their left hand, Either they're left-handed and they never were really taught or noticed the difference or they, you know. But uh, the left-handed is, um, no, 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 it's not, it's still with the right hand. But we always go out to the far shoulder and then into the other ones. If you see somebody who goes to the inside first and then outside, that's orthodox. So just kind of interesting how even that small difference, we just take it for granted. But there is sometimes slight differences in the midst of that all. But we beautifully sign the, trace the cross on ourselves and then respond with amen. That's the start of the dialogue of Mass, where the priest says something. Sometimes it's a dialogue, and sometimes it's a, it's a prayer where I'm not even addressing you. I'm addressing God. And so I know for myself, when I address God, I try not to look at you because I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to God. And we'll notice that at different different times, but you kind of unite yourself in prayer with that dialogue. And I 
I say in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and we all say amen, right? We also have a dialogue at different times. At, at the very beginning, right after the sign of the cross, the priest can say a few different things, and I've only learned the one because I'm too lazy or I just haven't taken the time to learn the other ones, but I always say the Lord be with you. And with, with your, your spirit. spirit right? But some of the other ones I can say, which is beautiful, is taken from Scripture. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And with your spirit. Or, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And with your spirit. So three different ones. But again, that's kind of the dialogue. That is actually the introduction. That's the, uh, my greeting to you. It's not just a formalized greeting, but it's actually the Lord be with you. It's like saying good afternoon. It's like saying have a good day. It's, it's an interaction and a welcome. After that, I often, we, we take a moment of silence and I often say, um, of course, when I'm not in the rhythm, I, of course, forget now. Um, let's take a moment to examine our conscience and so to prepare ourselves to celebrate the sacred mysteries. And at that point, we, we prepare ourselves with contrition, recognizing that at times we haven't always acted in the way of God and recognizing that in order to approach Christ, we approach Him in His mercy. There's a few different ways to forgive sins. Certainly the sacrament of confession is incredibly important, and you need the sacrament of confession in order to be able to be forgiven of mortal sins that end the relationship with God. But there are venial sins, which we recognize that aren't good for us, but don't completely break our relationship with God. And those venial sins, although good to confess within the confessional to receive that grace, can also be forgiven in Mass. Venial sins can be forgiven with the reception of Holy Communion. Venial sins can be forgiven with making a sign of the cross with holy water. Venial sins can also be forgiven with saying, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy. Well, not just saying, but praying, right? So when we come and we examine our conscience, we're examining our conscience. Are there any mortal sins that are on me? Are there anything that I need to go to confession before I receive communion? Are there venial sins that are starting to add up that I need to ask for God's forgiveness? Are there little things that are keeping me from approaching God at this point in this Mass? And we recollect those things so that we can actually ask for God's mercy. And there's a few different ways to do that, but uh, of course, I confess to Almighty God. Or the more common, which we use most of the time, which is a threefold invocation, and we'll do that right now. You were sent to heal the contrite of heart. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. You came to call sinners. Christ, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. You are seated at the right hand of the Father to intercede for us. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. May Almighty God have mercy on us, forgive us our sins, and bring us to everlasting life. Amen. That's specifically threefold, what we call is the Kyrie. Kyrie is the Greek for Lord, and the threefold Kyrie in the liturgy before 1962, they used to actually say Kyrie eleison three times, Christe eleison three times, Christe eleison three times. We only do it three times total, right? Christe eleison, Lord have mercy. Or Kyrie eleison, Lord have mercy. Christe eleison, Christ have mercy. Kyrie eleison, Christ have mercy. Lord have mercy. Sorry, I can't get the Greek. Uh, but uh, the Greek is a beautiful, is a holdover of the ancient church. The original language of Scripture, the original language of the liturgy is in Greek. And so it's kind of interesting that that Greek was even carried over when the liturgy changed into Latin, when it was the vernacular, the language that was spoken in the Roman Empire. When, when it was changed into Latin, they still kept the Greek Kyrie eleison. There's multiple places in Scripture where people cry out to God. Kyrie eleison. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And it's a beautiful place that we come before the Lord, recognizing our need for Him, the mercy, and that we come. Because without an acknowledgement of our sin, without an acknowledgement 
of our need for God, there's no need to be here. Who is Jesus if we don't need a Savior? And so it's a beautiful place to be as we come before Him asking for the Lord's mercy. After that, there's often on Sunday Mass, although not on weekday Mass, the Gloria. And I'd like to just speak a little bit about that because the, the Gloria we're not going to say today, but everybody knows the Gloria. And I don't know about for you, but for me, it always seemed like a really long extra hymn that we had to sing in the middle. You know, it's like the same every single week. You know, you get bored with the other songs and hymns like the Gloria, you know, you can get especially kind of like, okay, here we go again. Um, but why do, we, why do we do that rep- repetitive so much? It's because it's an important hymn that we have. It's actually one of the oldest. It, of course, starts out with kind of that greeting of the shepherds. Holy, uh, glory to God in the highest. Thanks, Bob, for being here and helping me when I forget. Glory to God in the highest and peace to people of goodwill. And so we start out with that, but then it's a whole, what we call is actually the great doxology. Doxology is glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. That's kind of the short, the normal doxology. But the glory is this great doxology. And it actually has roots in the early church from about 140. And interestingly enough, I thought this was very interesting, the Gloria was, kind of has the roots in the very early church. But it wasn't until the 6th century that it entered into the liturgy, specifically with, a Pope's, with the Pope's Christmas Mass in the 6th century. But it was so special that only the Pope could use it at that time. But slowly it kind of worked and bishops started to use it at Sunday Mass and really important feast days. But a priest still couldn't use it in his own Mass. But then finally, a little bit later after that, a priest was allowed, priests were starting to allow to use it at the Easter Vigil only. Then finally, in the 11th century, it was then used for the universal liturgies in the church. Uh, And we have maintained that to today to use it specifically on Sundays and large solemnities with, to be able to celebrate the majesty and the glory of God. But it's omitted at certain times during Advent and Lent to kind of take a little bit more of a somber tone. And so when, we, when the Gloria isn't there, it's not, uh, thank you, Lord, now we don't have to sing that hymn. It's actually kind of a little bit of a, a letdown. We don't get to sing that hymn of glory. For daily Masses, they're a little bit shorter, unless you have Father Samuel who's giving a teaching Mass and talks really long. Daily Masses are a lot shorter, and so we don't have the Gloria specifically in that because it's not a big celebration of a Sunday Mass. After the Gloria, or a daily Mass after the Penitential Act, then we have the Collect, which looks like Collect, which kind of collects our prayers together. And so the priest says, let us pray. And that's a sign for the server to get the book. But it's also a reminder for us to take a moment. I don't say, let me pray now. And you're like, wait, but haven't we been praying this whole time? Yes. But we constantly need to refocus, right? Because constantly we're being kind of led astray and distracted or different things. And so... When I say let us pray, we're kind of like, oh yeah, that's right, we're praying here. Okay, I'm not looking at the baby in front of me. I'm not, you know, trying to poke the people around me. Okay, let us pray. Let us, let us call to mind those things that we brought to pray here today. And the collect is something that is the universal church has, and we actually have during certain times individual collects that the whole church prays. The United States today, on the anniversary of Roe versus Wade, is asked to pray the Mass for giving thanks to God for the gift of human life. And so this is the same colic, the same prayer that Masses all over the United States today prays. But often the colic that we pray on Sunday and other things are the colic and the prayers that the Universal Church prays. And so, let us pray. God, our Creator, we give thanks to You who alone have the power to impart the breath of life. As You form each of us in our mother's womb, grant, we pray, that we whom You have made stewards of creation may remain faithful to this sacred trust and constantly in safeguarding the dignity of every human life through our Lord Jesus Christ, Your Son, 
who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. And now you sit, right? Right after the colic. Then you get that opportunity to sit and be like, oh, good. You can sit down as well. We have different postures within this, within the liturgy, because we are embodied human beings. We're not just our spirit, and we're not just our body, but we're body and soul. And so the things that we do with our body can help us pray or distract us from prayer, right? You know, if you sit in front of a TV, it's, it's, it's hard to pray. you got the radio blaring, it's hard to pray. But if you take some time of silence, if you step away, if you've got a spot of prayer, right? A church is often an easier place to pray because it embodies us to be able to help guide us. Well, same thing with the postures of our prayer, even within Mass. That when we stand, there's an intention that we have, right? That you can't fall asleep that easily standing up, although, you know, it is possible. It is possible. But standing up, often we don't, we don't fall asleep. We're, we're a little bit more attentive. But when you sit down, there's a little bit more passivity there. You're kind of able to fall asleep. You're kind of easier to receive things. Whereas you're standing up, you're ready to go. You're ready to be active. You're ready to participate. You're ready to respond. You're ready to... And so when we stand and we start Mass, that's an opportunity for us to be ready to stand. But we especially stand when we offer prayers. We kneel when we pray in humility. We sit when we're receiving something, right? When somebody important comes in, if the president were to come in or something else, or somebody important into a room, you stand up to greet that important person. But we ourselves also start Mass standing in that way. We also stand when we pray at different times. We'll notice a few different times when you stand and when you sit. But at the beginning, we stand. One of the other postures that I'd like to acknowledge is that if you noticed um, it's best if a priest doesn't doesn't hold the book the server holds the book well why does he hold the book you know can a priest hold a book well i can but it's a heavy book so it's better for somebody else to do it right uh but it's also so that the priest can pray with the posture of his body and one of the postures is the oran's position and the oran's position is this this open position the standing position with our hands open to god and it's a very traditional posture of prayer that, that Noah would have used, Moses would have done, right? When Moses and the Israelites are fighting, he has to hold his hands up. And when he holds his hands up, the people of God, you know, are winning in the battle. And when his hands go down, they start to lose. So they hold their, his hands up. We ourselves also, the priests, puts his hands up and prays. In a traditional, in kind of the 1500s to 1962, the priest would have prayed like this. There was a very specific way of holding the hands, and there was, it, was, it was like this. I'm not exactly, I don't know all the, the symbolism behind it. In the early church, it was much more open. And in the early church, it was kind of more open in this way to remember especially the crucifixion of Christ, who himself opened up his hands and opened up and was willing to pray to the Father, laying down his life. We ourselves, when we pray, also lay down our life. I like kind of this position a little bit. It's not, it's not quite so crazy. Um, but the elbows in, but my hands faced out, which is a very kind of Western prayer position. Our hands are kind of these places of, of uh, you know, where we greet someone, where much, many things happen with our hands and how we touch, how we interact with the world. And so that posture of openness is also a posture of openness and a posture of working with the hands in our prayer. And so when the Iran's position is a posture of openness, a prayer specifically to God, and that in Iran's position for the priest, whenever the priest goes like this, he's praying on behalf of all the people here. It doesn't mean that you're not praying, but it means that the priest is specifically gathering, collecting all the prayers to pray on the behalf of our ordained ministry. And so we come before and do that. After the Iran's, after the prayer, then everybody sits down and we have the readings. And so I'll have the first reading, then we'll talk a little bit more about it, and then we'll do the psalm. So if you want to come up and do the first reading. So we just heard the first reading. At daily Mass, we only have one reading, then psalms, then the Gospel. At a Sunday Mass, we have two readings. 
And that was something that changed in 1962. I'm referencing 1962 quite a bit because 1962 was the year that the liturgy was reformed into the form that we know today. It's interesting for us to know because it's not like 1962 was completely different. Um, and as if we just have to ignore that, but we understand that liturgy has formed over the years, and that to understand where we are today, we have to understand the past and where things come from, that they don't completely come from thin air, but they come from a reforming, right, and, and working and perfecting in the midst of it all. And in some ways, our liturgy is better than it was before. In some ways, you know, we're still working it out. It doesn't mean that for the next 500 years we'll have the same liturgy, but it will be different. Before 1962, there was only one reading at a Sunday Mass, and that was always a letter, or it was only one first reading. There was a gospel and a first reading. And the first reading was always a letter to the letter from St. Paul that just continued on and, and was the same, and the gospel was as well. So every single year you'd have the same one. Well, we're very grateful after 1962 that there's, there's a lot more variety. We've got a first reading, which is often an Old Testament which kind of give us the history of where we are. The psalm, which kind of brings in the psalms, the songs of the Old Testament, which the priest prays on a regular occasion and always have, but now is brought out to the people. Ideally, it's sung because they were written to be poems, to be sung in the midst of it all. And so hopefully, most of the time, we, get to be, we are able to sing it on Sunday. Then the second reading is a letter, not just from St. Paul, but from... It might be from St. Peter or St. Jude or, or, or someone else, but it kind of continues. Interesting, one of the things that I kind of read about uh, the response, um, so one of the things in the Liturgy of the Word is that as we hear the Scripture of God, as we're sitting down, we're receiving. We're not supposed to just be receiving and kind of consuming or just not just hearing the words, but we're supposed to be meditating. We're supposed to be praying. We're supposed to be listening and taking in what is spoken. And at the end of it, the reader says, the Word of God. And that's not part of the reading. That's an exclamation at the end to remind us, this is the Word of God. That the connection between Scripture and the Eucharist should be so, so clear. The Eucharist is the, is the Word of God, right? The Word become flesh. Scripture is the Word of God which takes flesh in our hearing. And St. Jerome, uh, who translated the Bible into the Latin text for the first time, or at least the best time, he wasn't the first, but he was kind of the official text. He was a really smart guy and a saint of the church and a hot for church father. What he said about Scripture, that he was a big studier of it, he said, you know, you'd never let a crumb of the Eucharist, you know, just be discarded. But yet, how often we don't always, we sometimes let the words of God fall onto deaf ears. That the word of God is just as important to reverence as the Eucharist is. Not to say that we don't have to, you know, reverence either, well, we don't, you know, we don't have to worry about that. But that both are called to be reverenced and to be heard and taken care of in all their bits and pieces. And so we say, the word of God. Thanks be to God, right? We say that explanation. Thanks be to God that we have this to hear. One of the interesting things that I read about before um, was that uh, in the early church, at least one of the practices that would sometimes be said, they were just reading letters from other people. And so a bishop would be sitting there and a young priest or a deacon would be reading the letters and he'd be, it'd just be a continuous reading. And then at a certain point when the bishop wanted to basically end the reading, he would just cry out, thanks be to God. You know, that was, that was the end. That was basically to cut him off, you know, and say, okay, now we're going we're gonna to move on with everything else. So we don't quite do the same anymore. We're not, we're not cutting off the reader. We've got it split up already into sections so that we hear the different parts and it is a continuous reading in some ways. And so the first reading is that Old Testament the second reading is that New Testament. The Old Testament and the New Testament, well, I'm going to preach homily about that a little bit. So, we don't have to worry about that. But the next is the psalm, which are supposed to be poems, and is a responsory, and has a dialogue between God and His people. And so we should recognize that as kind of in the midst of it, that it is still the Word of God, but we interact with it in a slightly different way. And so why don't we listen to the psalm? In between the Scripture readings, there's often a time of silence as the reader walks here and there and that's 
not just an inconvenient silence, but it's a time for us to be able to soak in the Word of God, to be able to meditate and take that time of silence um, to pray with the Word of God. Alleluia, 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 Alleluia. At this point, we're all standing, right? So our posture has changed. We're attentive. Someone important has walked into the room that we're about to read from the Gospel, which is slightly different than the rest of the Scripture. The gospel, Gospels are kind of the high point, the most important Scriptures that we have because it speaks about the life of Christ. And that's why things kind of change around the Gospel. It's different. It's not just the same as the rest of the Word of God. The priest or deacon, the deacon will ask for a blessing to even read the Word of God. The priest, before he reads the Word of God, actually says a prayer. So the priest, it says, is supposed to bow to the altar and then say as a prayer, Cleanse my heart and my lips, Almighty God, that I may worthily proclaim your holy gospel. It always humbles me in the midst of it because we sometimes put a lot of emphasis on the homily, right? The homily better be good. That's, that's whether Mass is good or not. No, no, no. I don't say a prayer before the homily. The, the church doesn't obligate me to say a prayer before the homily. It, but it obligates me to say a prayer before I preach the gospel, before I even say the words of the gospel, to realize that no matter what, the gospel is this unbelievable and humbling thing to be able to proclaim out loud to all of you. Often, during Sunday Mass, we have the book of the Gospels, which have all of the Gospels on the altar. Again, linking the Word of God with the Word of God. With the altar and the sacrifice, with what we hear within Scripture there. And so the priest processes with the book of the Gospel, which I don't have here, this is not the book of the Gospel, uh, processes with it, sometimes with the candles, to just give it that greater dignity and glory in the midst of it all. The Alleluia is said, um, which kind of is this expression of joy in the midst of it all. The Alleluia, praise be to God. It's just kind of this non... Some people translate it into... Um, um, I mean, I wrote it down here. Or maybe I didn't because I didn't think it was... It, translated sometimes as praised be the Lord. Praise be God. Which it sort of is, but it's also, it's more than that. It's just like this guttural, hallelujah. You know, you just, you don't have anything else to say. It's just like a noise of joy ultimately in it. And so when we say hallelujah, it's not just, it should be this expression of joy, this hallelujah. Thanks be to God for the gospel because it reveals so much about Jesus Christ, because it reveals the life of Christ who became one of us so that we might know him. And we know him today in the gospel. Okay? But there's even more preparation than just the Alleluia, than just the priest's prayer. Then the priest says, The Lord be with you. And, with your spirit. and the priest says, A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Mark. Glory, Glory to you. Now, we cross ourselves. And of course, you know, sometimes you can pray, you know, may the Lord be on my. Uh, mind, my lips, and my heart. There isn't any actual um, obligation. There's no specific actual prayer for that. Um, and in fact, the people weren't actually instructed to make that sign until 1981. Uh, before that, the priest made it, and the people just kind of sometimes imitated, sometimes didn't, but he didn't say anything about the people. But now it, it asks all people to make a sign of the cross on the forehead, on the lips, and on the heart which, of course, we take to put Christ on us, okay? And so it's, again, we're preparing ourselves even more. We stood up. We cried, Hallelujah. We took this time to say these extra prayers because we're about to hear is so incredibly important. Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. That is why the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. The Gospel of the Lord. And so if anybody noticed, right, I kissed something else. 
I kiss the book of the Gospels. The book of the Gospels is so important. Again, kind of that reverence, that grace. But I also say another prayer. The priest says another prayer with the kissing of the Gospel. And the prayer is, through the words of the Gospel, may our sins be wiped away. A beautiful prayer in the midst of it that always kind of strikes me. That through the words of the Gospel, may our sins be wiped away. You know, that the words of the Gospel are so powerful that they would wipe away sins. And so that's kind of the final thing that the priest specifically kind of does with that, kisses the Gospel. Again, connecting the Gospel, the Word of God, to the altar, to the place of sacrifice, where Jesus Christ will become in flesh in the Eucharist. The homily is, uh, we specifically use the word homily uh, as Catholics instead of sermon, right? Most other Christians will talk about sermons and will, uh, different things. Um, and sometimes even Catholics will use sermon. There's not a huge difference. They're sometimes used interchangeably. But I like the distinction between the two and kind of the etymology of the word. The homily in kind of its root is kind of more conversational. It's supposed to be briefer and more practical. A lecture is kind of more of a, or a sermon is kind of more of a lecture and kind of takes up a greater weight in kind of what the focus is. A homily, in fact, wasn't even required until more recently. Many masses didn't have homilies. Now, we only have to have homilies on, well, we're encouraged to have a homily at every Mass, but even, it can be even omitted on Sunday for a grave reason. Again, recognizing that the homily isn't the most important part of the liturgy, but the prayers itself as well. Um, and so the homily is kind of this conversation, I, I try to make it as much as possible, not just a lecture, although sometimes it becomes a lecture, right? Um, but tries to become that it's practical, that it takes the Word of God and it helps connect it with your own life of what's happening practically within it. It's also not only supposed to connect you with your own life, but it's supposed to help connect the Scripture that we hear, the Word of God, to the Eucharist that we're about to celebrate. And so it's supposed to be a transitory to help kind of give it a little bit more flesh as we prepare to pray a little bit more and to invite the Word of God into the Eucharist. Specifically today, I, I found that the two readings, what, what stuck out to me was the way that the Old Testament plays so incredibly important in our New Testament life. Sometimes I've heard different expressions of, you know, people, well, the Old Testament is just, it's boring, it's useless, right? We have the New Testament, so just forget about the Old Testament. You know, take that part out of your Bible, don't read it, whatever else, you know. Don't worry about it, just focus on the New Testament. Well, yeah, I think the focus should be on the New Testament, but the Old Testament is what kind of gives it a foundation and an understanding so that we can actually understand the New Testament within context. Without the Old Testament, we sometimes interpret the New Testament in strange ways. And without the Old Testament, sometimes we don't understand the interpretation of the New Testament or really what it's speaking about. And I feel like sometimes we're like the Pharisees today. If we don't properly understand the Old Testament, where we criticize Jesus for doing certain things. We criticize the church for doing certain things. Like, well, why does the church do this? Why do we have to do that? Why do we have priests? Why do we have sacrifice? You know, doesn't the New Testament take away all that? Well, the New Testament is, is informed by the Old Testament. The Old Testament is fulfilled by the New Testament. And so, to understand it, we don't want to sometimes make mistakes. And, and specifically, the mistake today is the Pharisees, you know, try to criticize Jesus about, you know, doing something unlawful on the Sabbath. And Jesus, being the expert in the Word of God, because He is the Word of God, references, again, this Old Testament story where David himself ate the bread that only was lawful for, for priests. Recognizing that the law of God can sometimes, you know, there's laws of God which are intrinsically evil, right? There's certain things that are intrinsically evil, but there's certain other things that are just helpful for us. And one of the things that Jesus kind of puts in context today is that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In the same way I would say with the law, 
The law of God, the law that governs the church, the law that governs our moral life, it's not like we're made for that and we have to conform our life to that. But that those laws are actually to made for us, for our good and our benefit. It doesn't mean that we get to use the law when we want and discard it when we don't, but to recognize that the law is actually helpful for us and not destructive for us. And in the same way with the Sabbath, that the Sabbath is made for man, to help man to flourish, and not that man is made for the Sabbath to be confined in that small space. And so we come to understand the Sabbath in a greater way, come to understand the Old Testament, understand the law of God, to understand the Mass in a greater way, allow us to fulfill what we're made for in the midst of all that. You can remain seated. I'm going to just, uh, so normally at this time, I would stand and everybody would stand with me, right? Because we're kind of uh, to attention again. Before you were sitting down and maybe sleeping and, you know, whatever else during the homily. But then I've got to wake you up by standing, right? Uh, during this time on a Sunday, we would profess the Nicene Creed, or on really important feast days, we say the Nicene Creed or Apostles' Creed, most especially often the Nicene Creed, which is a little bit longer and a little bit more confusing in some ways. We've got these big words like consubstantial and you know, other, other things in that. The Nicene Creed is, uh, is given to us uh, from, from the Council of Nicaea in 325. So almost 1,700 years ago, the church met with all the bishops and, and came up with a creed, which is also called Symbolon. Um, there's a Symbolon-like uh, program out there that now teaches about different things, but Symbolon, kind of in the old, uh, old world, was this way of being able to make sure that someone was who they were. And so what they would do is they basically, you know, on occasion, the simplest way would be they'd break a rock, and then they'd, you know, take it, and if somebody, they'd leave one half back at home, and they'd, you know, take the other half, and if they wanted somebody to be speaking on their behalf, they'd give them the rock, so that when they went and told it, they'd be able to check the rocks and say, like, oh, yep, this is from the same rock, this is from the same person, right? And so our creed similarly kind of checks, like, wait, are we from the same rock? Are we from the same people? Do we profess the same thing? And the Nicene Creed unites us in that communion, that communion of faith, that we all profess the same faith, and that we're all together in that. And so that kind of symbolon brings us together, be able to say that we all profess the same thing. We all profess in Jesus Christ, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in, in specifically the language. It used to be that we started out and we said we profess. Well, that was changed more recently with the most recent translation. And I kind of love that transfer to the I believe, or I, I believe, we believe to I believe. So when we believe, we can sometimes kind of push it off and say like, yeah, we believe like you believe, but I don't really believe that. But I believe some of this and whatever else. Now we say I believe and it's like, no, no, no. I believe this. I believe every single word that I say. And it kind of takes more ownership for ourselves in that. We're not going to say the Nicene Creed today, but you can be able to think about that next time that you say that. To be able to think about the fact that you're uniting with the church since 325. It was, it was added to in 381 to include more of the Holy Spirit, but uh, since 381, I guess, that the, the Nicene Creed, you've been able to unite yourself to the church throughout that whole time. After the Nicene Creed, after we're already standing, we're gonna, we have the intercessions, the general intercessions, which are actually the last part of the liturgy of the Word. And the intercessions are supposed to take the Word of God, what we heard from God, how we apply that to our own life through the homily, how we profess that with the church, and then bring those prayers, being informed by the Word of God, by bringing those prayers that we brought at the beginning of the church, being informed by the Word, and then we bring those prayers through the universal prayer, and we bring those to God in the altar to offer up during the liturgy of the Eucharist. And so it's very strategically placed to be that hinge into the liturgy of the Eucharist because the liturgy of the Eucharist is that unification of the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, of that sacrifice and that prayer of Jesus Christ to the Father of laying down His life and praying on behalf 
of all those here. And so we kind of are informed by the Word of God to not make outrageous prayers like, well, uh, we pray to God that we might all get new cars, right? Right? We're not, we're not praying for that. We're praying through the Word of God, being informed by our faith, not um, praying completely outside of that. And so let us stand and bring our prayers before our Heavenly Father who hears and answers our prayers. We pray especially for, for Pope Francis and for Bishop Powers and all the bishops of the church that they might continue to promote a culture of life in this world and stand up for life in all stages. We pray to the Lord. Lord, Lord hear our prayer. We pray for our government that there might be resolution uh, for the service of all those most in need in this world. We pray to the Lord. Lord, hear our prayer. We pray for our parish community that it might be a community of prayer, of sacrifice, of love, of faith and hope. We pray to the Lord. Lord, hear our prayer. We pray for all those who do not know Jesus Christ, that they might come to know Him and to be changed by Him and to receive the hope and faith that He gives. We pray to the Lord. Lord, hear our prayer. We pray for all of our family and friends those who don't know, uh, who've walked away from the church, who have walked away from Jesus Christ, that through our example, through our witness, through our continued desire for Jesus, might be a witness and a light to them in the world. We pray to the Lord. Lord, Lord hear, hear our, our prayer. prayer. We pray for all those who are suffering, especially those in our community, uh, in our parish community, who aren't able to make it to Mass, who are suffering mental, mental physical, emotional, that they might... Uh, know the presence of Christ through prayer, through the Word of God, and through the community. We pray to the Lord. Lord, Lord hear, hear our, our prayer. prayer. We pray for all the faithfully departed, especially those who have died this day. We pray to the Lord. Lord, hear our prayer. Heavenly Father, we bring before you all of these prayers, knowing... Uh, of your desire to hear our prayers as you sent us your very Son so that we might know you, so that we might have confidence in you and continue to bring our prayers even in the midst of darkness and to continue to know that the light that you bring through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. We'd like to uh, invite you to, uh, on February 5th, I'll be having the second part, the Liturgy of the Eucharist. Uh, and so we'll be focusing after the universal prayer, and we'll be talking about everything after that. And so the first part will be normal, and then we'll kind of dive into the other, the liturgy of the Eucharist, a little bit more to the end of Mass. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace, glorifying the Lord by your life. Thanks be to God.